how you're feeling, but looking out on a sea of jackets and cardigans and boots just makes me happy. Um, my amens and hallelujahs just get a little louder, I think, when I can use the word crisp to describe the weather outside. And so what an awesome Lord's Day it is. And we get to dive into the scriptures today, uh, which is always sweet. We do that every Lord's Day, among other means of grace that happen in this place. Prayer being one of those, we're going to get to that uh, in just a moment. Let me go ahead and invite you to open up. Speaking of prayer to Luke chapter 11, that's where we are this morning. We've been in the book of Luke for a pretty good while now. We're coming up on almost a year when we hit Advent of this year. It'll have been a year since we started our series in the book of Luke. That drum set made it sound like that was a joke, but uh, it wasn't. Uh, we are serious about our time in the scriptures as a church. Um, Luke chapter 11, that's where we are right now, which means we're almost at the halfway point of our walk through this incredible book of the Bible. Uh, we've seen Jesus do some, some pretty miraculous things uh, up to this point. We've heard some incredible teachings. Uh, we're going to hit on something that I don't think gets enough press, honestly, when we look at the gospel accounts. But before we get into it, let me go ahead and pray for us. Our Father in heaven, that we could even begin a prayer like that is a miracle, one that I think oftentimes gets lost on us, Lord, that you have invited us into a wondrous means of grace, this thing that we call prayer. Jesus, thank you for teaching us how to pray, a reminder that prayer, effective prayer, doesn't come naturally to us. We need to be discipled in prayer. And so we sit at your feet this morning with your word in hand, Lord, and, and we ask you to teach us, we ask you to show us what it what it means to leave spaces like these and to engage in a personal relationship with the living God. Holy Spirit, would you awaken our minds, would you awaken our hearts as we sit with the scriptures this morning and move and stir and work in our hearts, in our lives to change us as we leave this morning for your glory and for our good. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. So I just alluded to this a moment ago, but now let me get a little bit more explicit. When you when you think of the life and ministry of Jesus, what typically comes to mind for you? I mean, we, we naturally gravitate to thinking about Jesus' teachings, his miracles, his parables, his interactions with different people along the way, the events leading up to his crucifixion, what we call the passion of Christ, that subsequent wonder of the empty tomb. We don't tend to give quite as much consideration to Jesus' prayer life. I mean, yeah, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, that gets a lot of press. Like, that was, you know, one of the most intense moments of prayer in the life of Christ. We pay a lot of attention to that one. But, but what about those everyday moments of prayer in the life of Jesus that you see over a three-year span, roughly, intermingled with all those teachings, intermingled with all those miracles? Martin Lloyd-Jones once referred to prayer as the highest activity of the human soul. All right, let me say that again. Martin Lloyd-Jones once referred to prayer as the highest activity of the human soul. Now that probably gets lost on us because we tend to shrink down and reduce prayer to less than what it is. There's a reason that one of the great questions that we have when it comes to prayer is, why pray if God is sovereign? And let me, let me hit on that really quickly just because I think that's a significant issue that a lot of us wrestle with. In the decree of God, he has determined that prayer be the means that move him to his decreed ends. 
Don't ask me how to explain that or make sense of that mystery. I can't do it. The best illustration that I've heard along the way, I believe it was John Piper that said, uh, in the same way that God has ordained that hammers be the means by which nails are driven into boards, you don't just put a nail up to a board and watch it burrow its way in, right? There's a means by which uh, nails make their way into boards, the means being hammers. Similarly, there's a means by which God has determined that his decreed ends would come to pass, namely prayer. That God has called us to pray that we might move him to his decreed will and ends. And he knows the, the end from the beginning, right? That's crazy to think about. And I hope that in and of itself moves you to, to pray more, not less, if you believe in a sovereign God. But what I think Lloyd-Jones was getting at was something so much bigger than that because part of the reason we wrestle with that question above all other questions, most of us, when it comes to prayer is because we've shrunk prayer down to simply petitioning God. And prayer is so much more than that. The reason Lloyd-Jones would say that prayer is the highest activity of the human soul is because Lloyd-Jones understands that prayer is personal communication with the living God, which sounds like the most simplistic definition you could possibly come up with, right? Right? personal communication with God. And yet packed into that is so much theology, so much wonder, so much grace that you couldn't possibly get your mind around it in a lifetime. Who is this God? There are entire tomes that have been written to try to make sense of who God is. And then the idea that we as human beings could interact with him that Jesus would, would make a way where there was no way to open up the portals of heaven that we could engage with the living God. That's why Lloyd-Jones had that kind of mindset when it came to prayer, which is why he could call it the highest activity of the human soul. Luke records upwards of a dozen moments of prayer in the life of Jesus, many of which are not mentioned in, in any other gospel account. Luke clearly wanting us to see that prayer is a key aspect of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus. And so it should come as no surprise that chapter 11 would begin with these words, now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Keep in mind, this is right on the, the heels of the story of Martha and Mary, a story of the necessity of dwelling in the presence of God. Here you see Jesus praying, dwelling in the Father's presence, showing us something of the, the significance of the priority of prayer in the economy of God. Which surely caught the attention of his disciples as we're told that one of them approaches Jesus with a request. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. It was pretty commonplace in Jesus' day for a rabbi to teach his disciples some sort of model or example of, of prayer. I mentioned this a moment ago. I'll say it again. It's a good reminder that effective prayer doesn't come naturally. It's part of discipleship as we learn what it means to communicate with God in glad submission, in deep trust and dependence. How should we pray? Jesus tells us. And he said to them, verse 2, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation." We can recite these words verbatim, and that's beautiful at times, and we, we can and should do that. But more than that, this is a model 
for what prayer is meant to be. It encapsulates the, the essence of what it is to personally communicate with God. The Lord's Prayer, we call it. Here's a slightly more abbreviated version than that recorded in Matthew's gospel account. And yet, the essence is one and the same. A prayer beginning with the glory of God, which is where we should always start. His name, his reputation, his kingdom, followed by words of acknowledged human dependence. The need for God's provision. The need for God's forgiveness. The need for God's protection. St. Jerome once said, The scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. That's the Lord's prayer. Simple enough for a child to recite, deep enough for any one of us to endlessly explore. You could study this prayer for the rest of your life and you would never get to the the deepest depths of the riches of what this prayer is about, truly. Entire Books, think about this, have been written on the very first word of Jesus' prayer alone. Father. Baked in there is the doctrine of the Trinity, the fatherhood of God, the hope of adoption in Jesus Christ. Before you ever get to the second word. Father, hallowed be your name, Jesus says. Now I would argue that these are the most critical words that flow from Jesus' lips in this passage as our view of God informs our prayer life. How how might our prayers honestly begin if they were based on our current functional perceptions of God? Meaning not what we believe to be true of God confessionally or or doctrinally, theologically, but rather what our hearts to believe true of God in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life. Would it truly be our Father in heaven or, or would it be Our absentee landlord, whom I need to fix some things in my life, but never seems to be on the premises. Or maybe our our angry old curmudgeon in the sky, who's just waiting for for us to blow it so he can zap us with lightning bolts. Or, Or maybe our divine genie in a bottle, our divine Santa Claus, whose job it is to serve us in granting us wishes Jesus begins this incredible prayer with a a both and that's so wondrous that that were it to grip our hearts would radically shape the way we pray. On the one hand, Father, Lord's Prayer, it's only yours and mine to pray on the basis of our forgiveness and adoption in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian, that's it. Don't move to the second word of this prayer before you run to the foot of the cross And cry out for forgiveness for sin that's found only in Jesus and on the basis of his blood. That's where this story's headed. Mount Calvary. That's where Luke is taking us. The place where God would give his own son that we might become God's children. The father turning his face away from Jesus so that he could turn his face toward us, toward you and me in love. J.I. Packer in his famous book, Knowing God, he says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. The doctrine of adoption, we've talked about it numerous times over as a church throughout the years, that we were all Spiritual orphans diving in the dumpsters of depravity. And by God's grace, he reached down in the 
person of Jesus Christ through the finished work of Jesus Christ and adopted us as sons and daughters. That we were once dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive from children of wrath, Ephesians 2, to children of God. John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. From fatherless to the God of the universe, calling us his beloved children. That in Christ, you can start your prayers and not just start them, but continue to say it as you continue to pray, Abba, my father. And yet, intimacy with God is not sacrificed on the altar of reverence toward God because Jesus goes on to say, Father, hallowed be your name. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The answer, and many of you know it, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That for those of us who are truly God's children, we long for his name to be glorified. His name meaning all that's true of him, all that's been revealed concerning him. We want it all out on the table, on display. May your name be honored. May your reputation be set apart as holy and beautiful. Your your name is not absentee landlord. Your name is not angry old curmudgeon in the sky. Your name is not divine genie in a bottle. Your name is Elohim, creator and preserver of all things. Your name is Adonai, master and ruler. Your name is El Shaddai, the omnipotent one able to help. Your name is Yahweh, I am who I am. Your name is Father, the one who has adopted us as his own. And on and on we could go. That's the short list. God's name is to be hallowed. And yet the kingdom of this world stands opposed to God's glory and honor. How is the hallowing of God's name going to happen? Jesus continues, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So important for us. As our prayers tend to to so easily become inward focused. My problems, my issues, my requests. If I'm honest, my kingdom. Jesus invites us to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Matthew 6, 33. Your reign, O Lord, your lordship, your sovereign rule in my life, in the church, in the world. In the right now sense, the kingdom having been inaugurated in the coming of Jesus, now seated on the throne of heaven, reigning with all authority and power and dominion, the one who transforms hearts, aligning them with the standards and values of his good kingdom, that we might hallow God's name in bending our knee in glad submission to the will of our heavenly Father, and in the not yet sense as we daily long and pray for the consummated kingdom of God. His future return to set all things right. His renewal of the created order as we know it. His eternal kingdom established here upon the earth. The age to come. We sing it. There is a far kingdom on the other side of the glass. And by a faint light we see. Still there is more gladness longing for the sight than to behold or be filled by anything. That's coming. And we as God's children shout, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Father, your name, your kingdom, Jesus says. The first half of Jesus' prayer, it's about orienting ourselves in allegiance and glad submission in response to the kindness and grace of our heavenly Father. 
The second half addresses our deep dependence upon him, our desperate need for him. Jesus continues, he goes on to say, give us each day our daily bread. Having begun with the the glory of the Father, his kingdom, Jesus moves to the neediness of the Father's children. A prayer for provision, for our Heavenly Father to meet our needs. Jesus here showing us that that there are communal aspects of the prayer life of, of a disciple. Do you notice that? Not just my daily bread, but our daily bread. Matthew's version, our Father in heaven. The language of daily bread bringing to mind the story of the Exodus. God's provision of manna from heaven for the wilderness wandering Israelites between the time of their liberation from Egypt and their entrance into the promised land. That that we Christians, like Israel, we live between the time of our redemption, our liberation in Christ, and our entrance into glory. And like Israel, we're relying upon the Father's generosity in giving us the basic necessities of life. We can easily forget that. We live pretty cushy. We American Christians in our suburban context, right? If we're honest, we functionally believe that that we've got this. We may cry out to God when we really need him. That's when our prayer lives ramp up, when our petitions heat up, when things get hard. The rest of the way, we got this, God. Go back to your deistic place far away. We can be our own gods. No, Jesus says there's a posture for the child of God of neediness and dependence that doesn't take for granted that which comes from the Father's hand. He goes on and he says, and and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. To be clear, here Jesus, he's not talking about the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In fact, Paul would go on to say in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Here it is, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Once for all, Hebrews 10. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Jesus paid it all. And yet, in this prayer for daily bread, daily protection, daily forgiveness, God wants us to confess our sins as we sin. In the confidence of justified adopted children approaching their heavenly father. It's this Psalm 51 language of David. Against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. It's about the daily restoring of a relationship with God. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. It creates a relational distance, even though we're we're justified all the while. There's something that happens when we confess our sin and ask for God's forgiveness, not positionally, but experientially. The restoration of intimacy with God, the feeling sense of his nearness. as We lay ourselves bare before him. David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There it is. Forgiving others all the while, Jesus says, one of the great signs that God's grace has truly and deeply worked its way into our hearts. He continues, and lead us not into temptation. 
Final part of Jesus' prayer, it's about protection. It's the kind of protection for which only those who know they're vulnerable would dare ask. We know that our final deliverance from evil will come when Jesus returns to set all things right. And we, God's children, will live happily ever after in a world where temptation and evil shall be no more. Yes and amen to that. Until then, it's the poor in spirit who pray to be kept from temptation. The temptation of the devil, the temptation of the flesh, the temptation of the world, the trifecta that comes after us daily. And if not kept from those things, we pray that our Heavenly Father would deliver us like Jesus when tempted in the wilderness. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, it may seem that we leave the glory of God behind for neediness and dependence in the Lord's Prayer, but we actually don't because it's all about his glory from start to finish. That's why we've included those words at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And yours be the kingdom and the glory forever. Jesus here teaches us how to pray as we first orient ourselves in allegiance and glad submission in response to the kindness and grace of our Heavenly Father then acknowledging our deep dependence upon him, our desperate need for him, which he follows with these words, verse five. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Having provided something of a model or example of prayer, Jesus gets it at the heart of persistency in prayer. Telling the story of a man having received an unexpected visit from a friend and, and without preparation, there was no grocery store run before this friend showed up in town. No food to put on the table for his house guests when morning comes. And so he goes and he bangs on his neighbor's door at midnight asking for help in time of need. Can I borrow your lawnmower? Can I borrow a cup of sugar? Everyone's nestled in bed. Everything's locked up, so to speak. The man's neighbor, he's reluctant to, to get up. And yet the man won't stop knocking in shameless persistence. Are you kidding me? It's midnight. That shameless persistence ultimately prompting the neighbor to respond. Jesus, getting at the heart of prayer, wants us to be like that man. That's how he wants us to pray. Like the man who will not stop knocking. There's another reason to pray in light of the wrestling with that question. If God's sovereign, why do it? Because Jesus says to, and he's our Lord. Keep in mind the context here. Again, Jesus has just given us a model or example of prayer, the kind of prayer concerned with the glory of God, his honor, his reputation, the kind of prayer concerned with the coming of the kingdom in allegiance to heaven's king, the kind of prayer concerned with deep dependence upon the Lord from whom we receive the basic necessities of life, the daily experience of forgiveness, ongoing protection from temptation, these are the kind of things for which we should persistently bang on the Lord's door. You might ask, well, what about Matthew 6? 
What about that idea of not heaping up empty phrases as the Gentiles do? For they think that they will be heard for their many words. I mean, Jesus said that too, right? What Jesus was addressing there was very different. He was going after a pagan mindset. Some pagans believe that if they named all of their gods, just went down the list, brought their request to each and every one of those gods, they'd have a better chance at getting a favorable response. It's polytheism. It was a mechanical, roadless, uh, heartless road exercise focused primarily on manipulating one's circumstances. And there's a danger in, in there for us as well. It's not that we should never pray repetitiously. In fact, that's the very thing that Jesus would go on to do in that most famous of Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark tells us, Mark chapter uh, 14, verses 36 through 39. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found his disciples sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here it is. And again, he went and prayed, saying the same words. Jesus went back with the very same verbatim prayer. How about Psalm 136 where the psalmist declares the the very same phrase 26 times for his steadfast love endures forever. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus is not so much coming after the, the mechanics of our prayer lives, but rather the sincerity of our hearts in approaching our Father in heaven. The kind of the kind of praying that doesn't lose heart. Like the persistent widow in the parable to come, Luke chapter 18, we'll get there soon enough. That Jesus wants us to persistently pray for the hallowing of God's name. Jesus wants us to persistently pray for the coming of God's kingdom. Jesus wants us to persistently pray for God's provision and protection in a never-ceasing posture of dependence and neediness. Jesus wants us to persistently pray for a feeling sense of God's forgiveness in a never-ceasing posture of confession. If a groggy neighbor in the middle of the night can be uh, persuaded to respond, how much more will our heavenly father who loves us, his children, respond to our shameless, persistent cries? Which is why Jesus goes on to say, verse 9, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, Jesus says, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? My children ask me for lunch. I've never dropped a scorpion on their plate. I don't know if any other parent has done that. If you have, you're a terrible parent. And we need, to, we need to meet after the service for other reasons. This is not, by the way, and I think I've already alluded to this, but I'll just say it explicitly. This is not some blanket, name it, and claim it set of verses. That's not what this is. It's the way they're oftentimes treated when they're taken out of context. It's not about persistently asking for a private island or a luxury jet. It's about persistently asking for the very things Jesus has just taught us to pray. Again, these verses, they're about God's glory. They're about God's kingdom. 
They're about God's provision and protection, a feeling sense of his forgiveness. In fact, Jesus sums it up as good things in accordance with the fullness of the Spirit, verse 13. And in fact, you can actually take that imagery of serpents and scorpions scorpions a little further because going back to chapter 10, verse 19, those are symbols of evil to be treaded upon. If we only saw our desperate need like little children, we would embrace these words of Jesus for all they're worth. Ask and it will be given to you, Jesus says. Asking comes from a, a posture of neediness, a poverty of spirit. Seek and you will find. Seeking puts that, that very posture of neediness into action in looking intently for the, the help that we've asked God for. Knock and it will be open to you. Knocking, showing a, a degree of persistence in a refusal to stop banging on the door until God opens it. Extending to us the, the grace we need, the help we need. Here's how we know Jesus is declaring our absolute desperation and neediness. The words ask, seek, and knock, those are present imperatives, meaning keep on asking, never stop asking. Keep on seeking, never stop seeking. Keep on banging on that door, never stop knocking. In other words, you're never not desperate for God. You're never not needy for God. We know this kind of persistence that Jesus is talking about here because it comes to bear in our own lives again in desperate times. Pleading with God for the healing of a loved one in their sickness. Pleading with God to meet our needs in a season of financial hardship. And what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 11 is that he wants us to be that persistent in pleading with God for the honor of his name. For the reputation of his name. Your glory matters, Lord. Your glory never stops mattering. Jesus wants us to be that persistent in pleading with God for the coming of his kingdom. Not our kingdom, Lord. Help us to long more and more for your rule, your reign in our lives, in the church, in the world, over the enemy. Jesus wants us to be that persistent in pleading with God for daily bread. Declaring every good thing we have is from you, Lord. If there's food in the pantry, it's because of our God. We're never not dependent for your provision. Jesus wants us to be that persistent in pleading with God for a daily sense of his nearness and forgiveness. Help us to forgive others, Lord, even our enemies against you and you only have we sinned. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Jesus wants us to be that persistent in pleading with God for daily protection from the temptations of the enemy, the flesh, and the world. All three, God, they never cease to attack me and my brothers and my sisters. Strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might fight the good fight of faith. D.A. Carson writes, God's approval rests on the person who is poor in spirit. Such a person recognizing his personal spiritual bankruptcy and his personal inability to conform to kingdom perspectives will be eager to ask God for grace and help, impatient to seek the blessings only God can give, delighted to knock at the portals of heaven. He also recognizes that salvation now and the full richness of that salvation in the consummated kingdom depends on God's grace, God's free unmerited favor. 
This man, he says, rejoices to read Jesus' invitation to ask, seek, and knock. He comes as a humble petitioner seeking pardon and grace. Right, we know this. The, the very nature of asking is an acknowledgement that God must give it. That we can't muster it in and of ourselves. So that prayer is an indispensable lyric in the song of the kingdom. It's another way of saying it's an indispensable aspect of discipleship and what it is to be a Christian. This desperate cry of the children of God for his goodness, for his glory, for his grace. And even if the fact that we could participate in prayer is a grace in and of itself, is it not? Talked about this very early on this morning. Were it not for Jesus... Not only has Jesus taught us how to pray, but he himself has opened up that portal of heaven for us. He's made a way for us to enter into the very presence of God. Many of you know these these verses that you find in places like Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, what? By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, it's torn from top to bottom, That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us do what? Let us bang on that door. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us approach the throne of grace confidently and boldly that we might find grace and help in time of need. Christ, our mediator, through whom we have access to the most sacred of places. Listen, when, when we pray in Jesus' name, that's, that's not uh, some sort of uh, formulaic thing that, that you have to say in order for God to listen. What, what we're saying when we say in Jesus' name, and it's okay to say it, but what we're essentially declaring is on the basis of the authority of Jesus Christ, I come before you, Lord. On the basis of the finished work, the shed blood of Jesus, who's now entered into the heavenly places and is seated at the right hand of the Almighty, I come before you, Lord. That's grace. Making a way for the means of grace that we call prayer. You can't escape grace. It's meant to overwhelm us. That by the blood of Jesus... And just stop for a second and consider this. By the blood of Jesus, you and I can confidently, confidently approach the perfect, majestic, holy God of the universe, creator and redeemer. And not only that, the wonder of wonders that we can approach him at all. We can approach him confidently, but let me go a step farther. You can approach him confidently, and you can call him Abba. Father. So Jesus says, let us then shamelessly and persistently draw near to his throne of grace, the needy children that we are.